Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the Bean Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Josh Day. Our mission here at the Bean Museum is to inspire wonder and reverence for our living planet. So with this podcast, we're here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, mlbean.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. Welcome to Why Life Science here at the Bean Life Science Museum at BYU. Today we have Seth Bybee and Jamie Jensen, uh, both from the biology department here at BYU. And we want to talk a little bit today about something that they've been working a lot on over the, the last um, couple of years and something we think is a really relevant topic for today and for perhaps the patrons of the Bean Museum. So just to get started, let's just, uh, why don't you guys just tell us a little bit about yourselves and what it is you do, how you got into science, and then we can talk a little bit about this topic for today. So Jamie, why don't we start with you? Okay, so I'm Jamie Jensen, so I'm in the biology department. Um, I am a biologist, but I did a lot of training in my graduate work in educational psychology. So my main research focus is discipline-based education research. So we do studies on how people learn biology. I've always loved science. I thought I was going to be a veterinarian, and then a doctor, and then a PA, and then a million other things. Ended up in graduate school, started teaching a few classes on the side, and realized that I love education. So. Um, that's kind of how I ended up where I am. Specifically in, in my lab, we focus on the reconciliation of evolution and religion. And we got into that because of Seth, actually, and, and several other people that were working on this. And we think it's so very important. And I've seen so many students struggle that I just thought this was, this was my niche. How long have you been at BYU? I've been at BYU since 2010. Okay. So a little over 10 years. Yep. Awesome. Seth? Yeah, so uh, I'm Seth Bybee, and uh, my research focuses on the genealogical histories known as phylogenies of insects. Uh, I've worked broadly in butterflies, uh, dragonflies, and beetles, with the main focus being in dragonflies. We're actually funded right now to do the entire tree of life for dragonflies. Um, and we get a look at the evolution of their color and their visual systems and ecological factors that might actually be driving their diversification sounds pretty easy yeah yeah super super easy <laughs> i remember just as a kid just always being kind of pulled and attracted to animals and organisms and things that were happening around me when i was five years old my dad started a degree in archaeology and he used to leave for the summers to go do digs in syria and while he was there he would collect for the bean museum actually I have this really vivid memory. I'm, I couldn't have been more than four years old, four or five. My dad brought home the jars and opened them up and must have pulled out a locust that was the size of my hand, you know. And I just remember that moment right there thinking, this is for me, All right. And then I've had experiences on and off that have just kept me in and kept me going. And uh, I never thought I would be an insect. So that first memory is pretty interesting to think that I actually circled back around to insects. As I developed as a scientist, I started to gravitate towards the evolutionary sciences. It was just where my passions were, just understanding what was going on in the world and how things could reach, you know, these beautiful, intricate, you know, colors and camouflage and all these different things. And so as I gravitated towards the evolutionary sciences, you know, I started to get known in my ward as the evolution guy, you know, that kind of thing. And I would have people come up to me all the time and say, hey, I'm learning this in my classes as a member of the church. 
can I believe this? And that's when I started to realize that there was, I don't know if I call it a problem, but there was at least a disconnect. As I came on at BYU, I started in 2012 at BYU as a professor, just immediately had students coming to me, talking to me about their testimonies and science in general and how it all fits. And, and that's where, you know, my niche is evolution. So evolution and religion is what we talked about. But, you know, we've talked a lot broader about science and religion and it's just kind of where the passion has grown from. What are the perceived barriers between science and religion or between evolution and religion? Where is that disconnect happening? One of the biggest things I think is the people's perception of science and what science can and can't do. And actually the research shows this, that one of the main predictors of evolution acceptance is a sound understanding of the nature of science. And it's coming from both sides. It's not just a scientific barrier or preached by religious people. It's both sides having a misunderstanding of where science begins and where science ends. And so science as a process is agnostic. It doesn't say anything about whether God exists or whether he doesn't exist. And sometimes we overstep our bounds in trying to say that there's data either way and there there isn't any data either way. And so if we can understand it that way, I think that overcomes some of those barriers. But that is one of the biggest barriers I see. Yeah, and I'll just jump onto that. I mean, just to be clear what, you know, some people might not be familiar with the term agnostic, right? But it really just means that science doesn't care. It's a-religious. It's a-religious. Yeah. It doesn't care whether God exists or whether God doesn't exist. Its whole point is just to go in and provide a systematic way to test hypotheses. And I think, uh, as Jamie was saying, a lot of people take that a step too far, right? Where they'll try and use science to prove atheism, right? Or that athe- that God does not exist. And on the religious side, people will look at scientific data and, and just say, well, there's no way that science can be, you know, science is wrong, that type of thing, right? Because God does exist. And neither one of those stances are very mature in terms of a scientific perspective, right? That science is just there. It doesn't tell us ethics, morals, values. Science just gives us a yes or no as to whether our data can be accepted or rejected. And some may even try to use science to prove the existence of God. And that's a very dangerous thing, or the lack of science to prove that there is a God, right? And and we call this a a God of the gaps. And that Mm -hmm. is the idea that if there isn't scientific evidence for it, then that must be where God fits, right? So just, what, two days ago, (laughs) I had somebody arguing with me that, you know, we haven't been able to create life in a Petri dish. We haven't been able to bring anything to life. And so therefore, that must be God. But what happens when we can, right? And what happens when science does provide evidence of certain things. You know, we, we get this a lot with morality, right? People have morality. That must be where God is. But there's all kinds of evolutionary explanations for why moral behavior evolved. And so the danger is that people want to place God into those gaps in our scientific understanding. And as a consequence, when science does fill in the holes, which we often do as science gets better and better, then your God disappears. And so a belief in God needs to be an entirely different set of evidence, right? It's evidence that's different. It's not natural evidence that you can hold and see and measure. It's a different kind of evidence. And so belief in God should be separate from what the science is saying or not saying. And that evidence would be a spiritual experience or something exactly that can't be quantified maybe they can't be quantified in the way that we quantify it in science but it certainly can be quantified in a spiritual sense and that's the other thing that people often struggle with is that they don't understand the difference between the types of evidence and they maybe don't understand or haven't fully developed the ability to interpret 
the spiritual data, right? But there is the same kind of mechanisms for interpreting spiritual data and measuring spiritual data that you would see in science. It's just, it's a different skill. Oh, like in Alma 32, experimenting on the word. Perfect There's example. There's data that comes from that, but exactly. it's spiritual. Okay. So then what are you two doing to resolve this conflict or break down this barrier? Well, <laughs> I mean, I'll start on this one and then I'll let Jamie take over because there is a whole lot of stuff we could talk about. <laughs> you know, I think about our very simple beginnings and where we are now and it's unbelievable. You know, just in a nutshell, we started out with just a Bio 100 class at BYU and now we're teaching workshops that are nationwide that are funded by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, right? Heavily funded to help religious groups reconcile. And I'll let Jamie fill in the gaps, but I'll just jump back and kind of start. We got started in this because we saw in our classes that students struggled and couldn't put it together. And so as Jamie and I talked, you know, I was doing things in my class. I didn't realize what I was doing at the time because I'm not as much of a pedagogical master as Jamie is, right? But I was essentially helping students reconcile science with religion. And I was helping them see that there are two ways of knowing and that they're not mutually exclusive and that we can take our spiritual experiences and we can hold on to those tightly and also look at the scientific data and we can hold on to that tightly and they don't have to cancel each other out or anything like that, right? And that we can just be patient as we walk through life and learn about both sides. Um, and from that, we started um, measuring some of the things I was doing in my class and I was getting good results from students that were able to accept evolution and didn't see it as a barrier to their faith. And then we brought a graduate student on who started to do it more broadly. And then since then, we brought on several graduate students and, and walked through this you know, pretty patiently over the last, what, seven years now, I think. Mm -hmm. Like Seth said, it started with just gathering data on what was going on and where our students were and what was happening. And then we started noticing that we were having these big effects in our classroom. In fact, I have a colleague who studies the way in which people teach um, evolution to religious students, and they've done it all over the country, and they always come back to me and say, what the heck are you doing? Because our data does not match anyone else in the country. We get these huge gains in acceptance without any decrease in religiosity, and that's really important. We measure that, right? We want to make sure we're not hurting testimonies. As a matter of fact, sometimes we get an increase. Sometimes we yeah. get an increase. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and so they wanted to know what are we doing, and so did we. So we've actually um, done a lot of analysis on this, and. And to sort of step back, there's several approaches to teaching evolution or science in general to a religious audience. And one of them that we see most common is the deficit model. It's the idea that we assume as scientists that if you don't accept evolution, you're somehow deficient. You're dumb, for instance. And we've actually gathered a lot of data on that. Turns out that's totally not true in any way, shape, or form. We've done sophisticated statistical analyses on it. It isn't true. It's not an intelligence thing. It's a worldview thing. So the deficit model tends to drive people away. Others have, have sort of transitioned from that into what we call the resolution model. That if I just show you enough data, you'll resolve that the science makes more sense than creation, for instance. And that also doesn't seem to work. And so what Seth and I have developed is what we call the reconciliation model. It's the idea that the two can live in harmony. And so what we do is we encourage students and educators that we teach to find bridges between the two, find ways in which they can be compatible and encourage those rather than suggesting it's some kind of deficit. Like Seth said, we've been running workshops, we've been running professional development classes for educators on how to approach religious students in a way that's reconciliatory. 
um, and culturally competent to what they're bringing to the classroom and allowing them a place to learn the science without tearing down their faith. This is interesting to me because my own experience, I was a biology major and I remember when I took evolution, my mind was like opened and I was so excited and I went and shared everything <laughs> with my roommates and people in my ward. All I got was fights and it was really frustrating to me because I was trying to reconcile it myself and then share. Anyway, I got people telling me that I was blasphemous and, mm -hmm. you know, all of that kind of thing. And so I just shut down. I just stopped talking about it altogether. I didn't have the words to explain my thoughts. And that's the issue, right, that Seth brought up, that the students don't know how to bring it together. So all we're doing is offering them, and not just one way, right? We offer them lots of potential ways to bring it together and things they haven't considered. And people get kind of all bent out of shape. We just did a workshop for secondary ed and high school and junior high science teachers. They kept going back to this, well, I'm afraid to, I can't talk about religion in the classroom. And, and that's not actually the Constitution, right? You can't promote a religion in the classroom. But there is nothing that says you can't offer students a way to feel comfortable in your classroom. And so that's kind of what we're trying to get the word out is that, look, this is not against the Constitution. We're not bringing religion into school. All we're doing is creating an environment in which we offer potential bridges for students who've never thought about it and don't have the tools. That's great. That would have been very helpful <laughs> to have this kind of reconciliation model available to me. And I worked through it and it's fine. And I know many people probably have too. I mean, probably any LDS student that took evolution had to deal with this. Well, if they're in my class, they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's important work, for sure. I really think it is. There's a lot of different directions we could take this, but I really think what Jamie brought up is this idea of cultural competence, that educators are able to meet their students where they are, right? Which is what we're taught to do in every class you've ever taught, meet your students where you are. But for some reason, when it comes to controversial topics like evolution, climate change, stem cell research, even vaccines, right? A lot of times scientists will pull back or educators will pull back and say, no, you need to come meet me where I am. And it's just different than the way we teach the rest of the class. And so I can see why students would be put off, right? They can feel it. They can feel the distance. They recognize the distance. And so this is just an opportunity as an instructor to say, hey, I, I know where you are, right? That, you know, a lot of you in here are religious. This is probably a really hard thing. You may have heard different things. You may have started somewhere different. But let's talk about this together, right? Let's, let's walk this path together for a little while, just like we did with chemistry and carbon and all that kind of stuff, right? Like now, as we come to evolution, let's, let's kind of walk through this together. I'd imagine that you get a lot of students who, who immediately will get defensive, right? It can be hard not to, right? When somebody raises a concern that you perceive challenges your beliefs, it's hard not to be defensive and get angry, or, which is why I'm sure Katie ran into so many issues, right? <laughs> the, the first reaction is defense and anger. Do you see that in your classes? How do you bring people back <laughs> down? How do, you, how, do you, how do you calm them down? Sure, well, we do see it for sure. We see that immediate defensiveness. Like Seth said, we acknowledge the elephant in the room. And that's often what I have to tell educators is if you don't feel comfortable, just acknowledge that there's an elephant in the room, right? Even just saying, I realize, like Seth said, I realize a lot of you are religious and this may be difficult for you and then send them to resource pages. We've got all kinds of resources available for educators that they don't have to do anything. They can just send their students to those resources. And if that's all you do, that's great. That, that brings people off their defensiveness. 
yeah, it's a validation of their feelings and yeah. it helps them feel like, okay, I'm being heard at least. You know, for anybody who does come to see our evolution exhibit, there is literally an elephant in the room. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you are right. You are right. <laughs> okay, so what are some resources that I- anybody who's listening to this podcast um, can use to help them perhaps reconcile their religion and science? I can direct them to our website. That's ricoevo, R-E-C-O-E-V-O, dot B-Y-U dot E-D-U. And we've run these workshops that, that Seth mentioned, and we've brought in educators from all over the country and from many different religious um, affiliations. And they made videos where we had a biologist and a theologian and, and a local pastor, sort of boots on the ground person, who sat around and talked about how they bring it together. Students can go there and pick the video that matches their religious affiliation and watch that. We also have a link on our website to the Smithsonian the Smithsonian's Human Origins Project has a broader social impacts committee that I'm a member of, and we've each made a video from our different religious affiliations just individually talking about how we bring it together. And so all of those videos are available on the Smithsonian site, and our site will link to that as well. For those people who are more research-inclined, you know, all of our publications are out there and can be read, and, and they're not anything incredibly difficult to, to understand or read, but I wouldn't be afraid to even just pull down our our research publications and read those yeah not a lot of technical jargon and they're on the website as well awesome so i think going back probably to the beginning in your first question of what some of the big barriers are one of the biggest barriers is our dogmatism both from a scientific perspective and from a religious perspective we tend to be uncomfortable with things we don't understand but the problem is we don't know everything from a scientific perspective nor do we generally know everything from a religious perspective And so being able to be comfortable with uncertainty, with things that seem to contradict and we don't exactly know how to explain them is a really important skill. And I think it's something that a lot of people, myself included, lack, right? Being able to say, you know, that doesn't make sense, but it doesn't mean I have to leave the church over it or I have to ditch science over it. It's just something that I don't have a complete knowledge yet and I need to be patient and wait for it. How do you think one gets over that? discomfort? I think it's a process. One of the things that I'll teach my students is this idea of dialectical thinking, right? Where this ability to know what you feel and think, but then also trying to understand and think as on the other side of the coin. That's a pretty higher level way of reasoning and thinking, right? I mean, this goes way back to you know, Socrates and Plato, these guys doing this dialectical thinking, right? And I would argue it's, it's a really powerful way to not only appreciate science, but to find compassion for those around you who think differently. As you grow and you're able to kind of think out, you know, think how they might think, then all of a sudden you understand where they're coming from, that their life experiences may have led them towards this. Or, or you might even think, you know what, like, I, this is where my views are. But there's this one thing about my views I just can't make fit, but it fits on the other side, right? It doesn't mean you change your overall view and who you are, but you can just appreciate more. And I think building uh, compassion for the other side, thinking dialectically, is is a really powerful exercise. Well, it sounds like something that would be helpful in all aspects of life. Try to put yourself in someone else's shoes and and understand where they're coming from. It jives with our doctrine. It's a Christ-like way to be, right? How are you going to mourn with those that mourn? if you can't think and feel the way they do, or at least understand the way that they think and feel. Yeah. 
that's not an easy thing to do. It's a process. It's a lifelong learning type of deal where we're just trying to become like Christ, really. I think the beauty of it is, is just because you think dialectically or you're able, you know, to understand how someone else feels doesn't mean there isn't a right and a wrong, right? It doesn't mean that church doctrine isn't correct. It's just a way to understand how much uncertainty there is in the world, right? And that maybe you don't feel as much uncertainty as someone else, but you can understand why there is. And knowing and understanding that they're not dumb for thinking that way. Exactly. They're not stupid for having a different worldview than you, right? That's not linked, as Jamie mentioned earlier, with intelligence. Hey, I know when I walk in my classroom to teach at BYU, I am, in any metric you take, one of the dumbest people in the classroom, (laughs) right? Because those students are all like, what, 29, 30 on the ACT? I won't even tell you my score. It's not a matter of intelligence, and I know that immediately. Then I respect my students because I know they're smart. I know they've tried hard, and I know they know how to do well in classes and learn material, and it has nothing to do with their intelligence, and it's up to me as an instructor to bring my life experience, to model for them, and to help them, you know, gain a little more. And that's an interesting thing because we did a study on this. And what we did is we sent out a survey across the country and we surveyed people's acceptance of evolution and some of their religiosity and, and beliefs. And then we gave them a, the Lawson's Classroom Test of Scientific Reasoning. It's a great test that tests for Piaget's formal reasoning skills, so scientific reasoning in general. And then we did some structural equation modeling to see if there was any predictive ability And what we found is that there was absolutely no relationship between your scientific reasoning skills and your religiosity, nor was there any relationship between your scientific reasoning skills and your acceptance of evolution. And it's funny, when we went to try to get this paper published, which was top-notch, I mean, we did everything we were supposed to do, the statistics were right on, and it got desk rejected from a couple journals that were like, no, this doesn't say what we wanted to say. From a scientific perspective, Uh. they were like, no, 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 no. We know it's an intelligence thing. <laughs> Once we got it into review and they realized the science was sound, like our sample was awesome, everything was fine, it got published, and then we got flack from the other side, from religious people who were like, what are you saying? We're dumb. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> like, let's just read the paper. It was interesting how much controversy it brought up from both sides, realizing that this is not an intelligence thing, that this is purely a worldview thing and, and having an understanding, like, like Seth said, of other people's opinions and points of view can help you help them come to an understanding of the truth. So I had a student email me. He was a past student maybe 10 years ago. And he had read my devotional talk in the Y Magazine. And, and he was saying how you know, it made a lot of sense. And he was real excited to be able to bring them together because he was sort of struggling with his faith. And this is something like Seth and I both get emails like this and students walking into our office all the time that are struggling with their faith, have come up against the science, don't have this bridge, and don't know what to do about it. But his was interesting, and it kind of goes back to this dialectical thinking, but he said, I, I want to believe that God is real, but how do I overcome bias, like confirmation bias? I want it so badly that I'm going to see it in any evidence, and so how do I know that that's even real? And I actually stewed over it for a while. I emailed him and said, I'll get back to you. Like, I really need to think about this. And I was sitting contemplating it on Sunday, actually, and it just like hit me like a ton of bricks in my head. There's an article that's really great written by T.C. Chamberlain. It was written in like 1893, and it's called The Method of Multiple Working Hypotheses. And it's talking about from a scientific perspective, the way that we avoid confirmation bias is we have multiple working hypotheses that we love, and he uses love. We love them all the same. 
until the data comes in, knowing that some of them are not going to make it to adulthood, if you will, that one of them will be supported by the data. But until then, I'm not going to favor one over another. And I was thinking about that and thinking, it's the same way. If you want to know if God is real and how this all meshes, you need to be available to have multiple working hypotheses. God's real. God's not real. God's real, but he's different than the way that I've been taught. And being able to hold those in your mind and then going to God and saying, okay, now I need the evidence that's going to differentiate between these. And I firmly believe that if you go to God humbly like that, he's going to let you know. Like, it's going to be obvious which one of those hypotheses is most supported. And I had a same conversation with a student over Christmas who was actually graduating BYU and was leaving the church. And he didn't want to, but why would God even speak to us? And, and I said kind of the same kind of thing. Doing Leave your mind open to receiving that type of evidence and work on your skills at understanding that type of evidence and just wait and be patient. And that's the thing. He said, I think I'm going to be an atheist. And I said, don't be an atheist. There's no evidence for atheism either. That's just as much a religion as theism is. <laughs> if you settle at agnosticism, I don't know either way, that's fine. But if you're open and willing, God will speak to you. You just have to have that avenue open and be humble enough to receive the evidence when it comes. If I can just add on to that, I think being members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, our doctrine is so open on so many different topics and that's part of getting the evidence and the data in the door is understanding this, right? You know, on the theory of evolution, it fits within our doctrine. You know, clearly it's, it's a creationist view on the theory of evolution, but it still fits and it's there. And it's something that, that members of the church don't need to be afraid of, that we can embrace. And what hurts a lot of our students is they come in our classrooms and they hear us speak and they think, holy smokes, everything I've been taught my entire life wasn't true and they feel betrayed and they feel hurt you know if there's any religious educators listening to to this podcast or anyone who teaches at church or whatever i think that it's a really important thing to be careful that we are only teaching doctrine I mean, how many times have we heard that from our leaders just teach the doctrine going a little deeper than that you actually have to understand the doctrine you can't just teach things that you feel you, you know because you've been told your whole life like you have to embrace this gospel wholeheartedly, fully, to its profound depths that you understand what the actual doctrines are. And once you do, you'll be the best teacher you could have ever been. And I feel like our students won't struggle. They won't come into my classroom and struggle with things that just aren't accurate. I know for me, growing up, if an adult was telling me that's the way it was, it's kind of like it just took it the way it was, right? It's just how I saw things, and it wasn't until I became an adult and was in a role of trying to teach things myself, being asked to teach a class or give a talk in church, things like that, that I realized, wait a second, most everybody here doesn't really know what's going on, or they've only got a, a, a small glimpse. You know, we're all just here trying to figure things out. Well, and there's a lot in science that we don't know yet either that we're trying to discover. But even going back to what you know, you're learning in primary, let's say, about Genesis, for instance, you have to realize that what you were taught was simplified on purpose, right? We're, we're not interested in trying to teach you the scientific underpinnings of the creation of the earth and all of the diversity. That's not the point of Genesis, first of all, right? Genesis was a poem or a temple liturgy that was meant to teach people the relationship between God and his children here on earth. 
but understandably you were taught a very simplistic version. And same thing, even in elementary school or even right now, if you're a junior high or a high school student listening to this, what you're learning in biology is still just small pieces of what we know and your ability to comprehend it is pretty low right now. You're still even learning the reasoning skills necessary to understand this. And so where you might perceive conflict may be that just you've misunderstood what they're teaching you. For example, I get students coming into our class and we actually study this. I have a graduate student studying misconceptions and evolution and a lot of it comes from Pokemon believe it or not <laughs> right <laughs> you know these kids are playing Pokemon and little Pokemon will evolve within their own lifetime basically it's metamorphosis right, right. they get wings and they get evolution they right. get fire breathing power or whatever and students will walk into the classroom and they'll say well I know what evolution is and I've seen it on Pokemon and if that's the way it works I don't believe it at all and I just want to say wait 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 <laughs> let's back it up and make sure you first understand that that's not evolution right first of all that's not at all what we're talking about and so I think having a, a big dose of humility right that's what it is realizing that what your primary teachers were teaching you it wasn't that they were trying to lead you astray they may not have understood it either, right? But they were bringing it down to the masses. And things that you were learning, you may have misunderstood based on your current developmental level, based on your current understanding and what tools you had to understand that. And so being patient to say, I probably don't know enough. And I still have to tell myself that when I see things that come into conflict and I go, mm, I probably don't know enough. And there's a great quote in the Life Sciences Building from President Nelson that basically, I'm going to paraphrase, but it says, if you see any conflict, it's because you have an imperfect understanding of the science or of religion or both. And keeping that in mind always is, is really important to being able to get to truth. I love what you just said, because really, what science and religion, they answer questions, right? And so you have to be humble. You have to say, well, I wonder about this, so I'm going to investigate and learn either way, yeah. if it's spiritual or scientific. You have to be humble and do the work to learn something new and then accept yeah. whatever it is if, if it doesn't match what you thought it was. Just as Seth mentioned at the beginning, science is a way to test hypotheses and we test them and then we decide at the end whether we can accept it or reject it. Every scientist has to go into that experiment knowing that what they think is going on may not be what's going on. Science forces you to be humble in that way, to say, I think this is what's happening, but here we're going to test it. It may or it may not work out. And if it doesn't work out, that's still okay. You can still publish the paper and say it didn't work out the way we thought it would work out because that's still valuable knowledge. Right. And I'll just add the best scientists I've ever seen in my life are the scientists that think they know the answer. They make these hypotheses, but they'll change on a dime as soon as they know their answer is rejected, right? That they don't keep trying to go down that rabbit hole and get more data to support to support what they think they realize very quickly oh i need to transition here what's another way what's another avenue to go after this and in the same breath i'll say the same thing about some of the most loving caring home teachers and ministering brethren and sisters that have ever walked into my home are the same where they'll come in and they think they have this understanding and they're very comfortable and they know the church is true but they're also ready to transition when revelation comes personally or from our prophet, right? I mean, think about it. All the change we've had since mm -hmm. since President Nelson's taken over. I watched people struggle when the announcement was made that missionaries could call home each week. You know, I think all of us who served 20 years ago were super jealous all of a sudden. <laughs> and, and we felt like their mission's not going to be as hard and as purifying as mine was. But that's so false, right? I mean, so false. And that has nothing to do with our doctrine at all. But being in the gospel enough to realize 
what is gospel bedrock and how open that actually is. This has been amazing. I mean, we just want to make it clear that we both are all in. My goal really with all this research is to save testimonies. We just want the youth not to have to abandon their faith over this. We've seen too much. Yeah. And we don't see it as a necessity and to to abandon your faith over science and frankly it's just heartbreaking to see it several times a semester yeah yeah that's why i said this is a a super important work because you are saving testimonies we hope so (laughs) we're trying we're trying we hope so there's a there's a strong current going the other way yeah but we're trying any last thoughts any last stories anything else I think we've talked enough. (laughs) Yeah, so on the website, there's a contacts page that has all of our information, and then there's like a resources page that has all of the links to these videos and to the Smithsonian and a bunch of other biologos and a bunch of other sites. And then there's a spot that's tools, which are really cool. There's a Rico Evo Share tool, which is like a family home evening focused series of videos and discussion guides to walk you through the science of evolution, but also its compatibility with religion. There's also the fear tool with a silent P anyway. (laughs) You can actually survey your students. So if you're an educator and you're listening to this, you can survey your students. It's anonymous, and it'll just give you like a conglomerate graph of things that they might be struggling with. They can predict how they're going to handle evolution. So kind of science-religion conflict. And that's on there. It's really easy to use. And then there's another tab that is people's stories. So people have shared stories of how they've reconciled it, and we're posting them as they come in. That's a great resource. We'll make sure to add that in yeah. our show notes. Well, Jamie, Seth, thanks for joining thanks. us. Well, thanks <laughs> for having it's us. Been a, it's been a pleasure having you on here. And for all of our listeners, please check out some of these resources. If you are having issues with this, if you have questions or are struggling, or want to b- better understand how to talk to other people about it, please go visit these resources. Um, Yeah, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you.